Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining us. Let's start this week by revisiting a tough conversation that had its start in Leverett, Massachusetts. Citizens there gathered after the 2016 presidential election, and they wanted to start some constructive healing dialogue. They reached out to residents of Kentucky's coal country, a region that voted for Donald Trump at around the same rate that Western Mass voters chose Hillary Clinton. The group had met twice to talk about their differences and the things that they have in common. They'll be meeting back in Leverett in October. Another project called Bridge for Unity grew out of this earlier dialogue. It was designed to bring together residents of Massachusetts, Kentucky, and South Carolina. The topic? Race and racism. Earlier this year, I sat down with Mass resident Paula Green, an organizer of these events and facilitator for the conversations, along with Gwen Johnson from Kentucky and from South Carolina, Regina Williams. Gwen and Paula are white, Regina is black, and she told me what happened when the group met in her home state. It was really informative because everybody's experience was so different. But what was wonderful for me was to realize overall that we all had similar experiences. We, we all had had things that made us hurt. But more importantly, we became aware of what hurt other people and how to be sensitive to those issues and how to operate as one group when it came to standing up for that which is right for all people. Can you talk a bit more about that, about those times at which it was difficult or tense or sensitive, perhaps, and how you worked through that? Well, we had had some sensitivity training as part of the um, weekend. And we also had a time when visitors came in. And this particular day, a woman came in and a black woman had been speaking. And the guest who was white started her commentary by saying that the black woman was very well spoken. And she went from there, which was fine. And you could almost audibly hear a a sigh in the whole group. And then when the guest had finished, a white woman who had been part of the commentary spoke up and said that the comment that the black woman was well-spoken could be misinterpreted because it assumed that black people were not well-spoken. And then she went on to talk about how Sometimes it's hurtful when people hear these things, although they may not respond. So the guest then turned to the black woman and asked if the statement had been offensive to her, and the black woman said yes. And so there was an apology. Through the whole thing, I think we all understood that the guest who had spoken did not have negative intentions at all. But it was an opportunity for all of us to recognize the situation, how people respond, and to be sensitive to it and to respond accordingly. And it was really great that a black person did not have to educate. Hmm. Gwen, I'm wondering if you can pick up on that and talk about your experience when this group got together, maybe how it was was different in some ways perhaps than, than what Regina felt and, and experienced. 
Well, I I was one of the ones who uh, involuntarily uh, went <gasps> when the lady said uh, what she did, and I. I didn't quite know what to do with it. I was feeling a great deal of anger. I went to South Carolina thinking I've not done anything to further racism in this country, but I certainly want to be a part of a solution, if you will, to the problem. And then having sat through all the activities, I realized that unintentionally at some points in my life, I might have been a part of the problem in a subtle way. Just as this lady had spoken without thinking of the hurt that it could cause, maybe somewhere in my lifetime, I have been one who had spoken in such a way. And um, it, it was really enlightening as Regina said, to sit through those activities and realize that, you know, certainly I, being from the coalfields of eastern Kentucky and being a woman, I'm no stranger to oppression and I'm no stranger to being talked down to. But I think even beyond that, the whites have been pitted against the other races. Poor white people, such as what my upbringing has been, have, poor white people have been pitted against other poor people of different races and ethnicities uh, without even realizing that we have been pitted against them. Paula, I'm wondering if, if you might expand on that a bit, what Gwen and Regina are talking about that talking across the racial divide can be even more difficult, but perhaps it can teach people a little bit more about the the root causes of some of the political divides that we have as well? I mean, is there something really powerful about just saying, let's talk about race and racism in America? Because of my experience working internationally, where I where I generally worked for a week or two at a time with a group, I created a three-day immersive experience for our dialogues, which is different from anything else going on in the States. And I did that because I know that transformation takes time. And what I'm really interested in is transformation of opening up the mind and the heart to uh, the experiences and the lived realities of other people in a deep enough way with enough exposure and enough time and enough intimacy so that a shift can really happen. And beginning this event in South Carolina with a trip to the plantation was a tremendous bonder for all of us. We, We needed to bond deeply around that because we were all in such pain around it. And so when I say dialogue and cultural exposure, we are trying to do both. Some people learn best when they're talking. Other people learn best when they're, when they're involved in art or music or some outdoor activity, etc. So we have many ways for people to touch each other's hearts and to understand each other's backgrounds. Um, I would say that race is probably the most difficult conversation to have in our country. And I entered it carefully, knowing that it was going to be very difficult and very worthwhile, and it is, because the shifts are beginning to happen for this small group. Regina, for you, what was it like to talk about race with a group of strangers, really? Well, I think the one thing that became abundantly clear from the beginning 
was that the, the issue of white privilege had to be addressed and brought to the fore. There was no way we could operate in a vacuum. I think that's where the facilitators came in. I felt really hesitant at first, initially, not knowing people. But as the facilitators worked with us, and as we were housed together, we got to know people on a one-to-one basis. It was no longer, you're white, I'm black, you're rich, I'm poor. You know, it, 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 All of that sort of moved to the background, and now you were looking at people who were people. And for me... That's where transformation began. When people ask me what happened there, I tell them it was deep. It was painful, but it was enlightening. And it makes me cry to think of it, you know, because I I sat in a room with folks who, you know, who have children that they care about, but they have to live in fear that those children are going to be targeted because of their race by law enforcement as well as others that I, you know, I have a grandson that I'm crazy about, but I don't really have to fear that for him in the magnitude that they have to fear for theirs. And we've just got to do something about that in this country. That I have a keen sense of injustice, having suffered injustice, but injustice goes beyond what I have suffered in this group that I met in South Carolina. So I want to learn more about them, to learn more about how they feel and how they think about things. And then if we can lock shields, so to speak, to protect the young and the old and just to have a a more peaceful culture and a culture where there's not so much inequality I'll be so happy to be a part of such a thing. That's Gwen Johnson from Kentucky, Regina Williams from South Carolina, and Paula Green from Massachusetts. They're all part of the Dialogue and Cultural Exchange Program called Bridge for Unity. This idea of communities coming together to talk about empathy is a growing national trend. New England Public Radio's Karen Brown reported late last year on a campaign called Trauma-Informed Berkshires, and she visited an elementary school that's trying to create a kinder environment and not just for kids under stress. Other than its bucolic setting in the Berkshire Mountains, Lee Elementary seems like any other public school, if the morning announcement is any indication. Today's lunch is today turkey taco salad, fruit and milk. Applications for the talent show are... But there are some unusual touches, like posters of a five-point scale. They're all over the building. Each number corresponds to a mood with a smiley or frowny face. And when students enter a room, they'll tap the number that reflects their mood. If you're three or above, you need to seek help from an adult. As Principal Kate Retzel explains this approach towards stressed-out kids, she gets a call on her walkie-talkie that illustrates the point. Kate, I could use a hand if you got a minute. Sure, where are you located? They've got a runner, a kid's trying to leave the building. I say it's the full moon. Lunar cycles aside, Retzel is not surprised a child is worked up before classes even begin. Despite the many arts and tourist venues of Berkshire County, rates of unemployment, poverty, and opioid abuse are rising. That's why Retzel has spent the last year trying to turn Lee Elementary into what's called a trauma-informed school. 
The goal is to train the whole staff to be attuned to stress in children's lives. People who have been around education for a long time thought it was all behavior-based, just that it was all a choice. But now that we know that it's all brain-based, we know that there are things that we can do. She got this idea in part from a campaign called Trauma-Informed Berkshires, which is aimed at the entire community, from police to libraries to educators. But before Retzel even heard the term trauma-informed, she knew something in her school had to change. About two years ago, we had, um, I wouldn't call it an uprising, I'd call it like a grassroots effort by teachers who were seeing an increase in behaviors. More children were getting upset and unruly, and traditional discipline wasn't working. So they were wreaking havoc on classrooms because they couldn't focus. (laughs) You know, I'm thinking about, you know, mom in jail, and I'm trying to learn ABCs, or, you know, I'm thinking of dad had to be taken to the hospital last night for an OD. So she hired a consultant to help change the school's culture. So basically, teachers started looking at um, not just curriculum, but ways to infuse compassion into the day. Okay, hands down. Let's switch gears to what we To demonstrate, we visit Jessica Pollard's second grade class. Each morning, students are encouraged to write down their darkest thoughts or fears. Right now, please read what you wrote down to yourself and then choose one of the options. Options are throw the page away, keep it, or rip it out of your journal and leave it on the teacher's desk. How does this help? Who would like to share? So we can get rid of our worries and not worry. Retzel, the principal, says several students in this class have witnessed domestic violence. Two have diagnoses of PTSD. Some have parents in jail. Come right back to your regular spot. After the journal writing, the teacher takes them through a few mindfulness exercises. Okay, so we're going to blow up our balloon. Ready? Take a deep breath, push it down, blow out. Only then does she bring up the lesson. Raise your hand if you're ready for math. Three-digit addition and subtraction today. As we leave the classroom, the teacher hands Retzel a few journal entries left on her desk. So these are the ones they're willing to share. Um, I'm worried about when my mom dies and when I die. Uh, On the weekend, my cat died. My guess is she's going to check further into that student for the day. Um, Many changes at the school are not obviously about trauma, and that's the point. They're meant to help the entire student body cope with everyday stress. So there's new seating. There's a stool that rocks. Lessons in self-esteem. I make mistakes. And frequent brain breaks. Blink your eyes quickly. Blink, 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 blink. It took a little convincing, but over time, the teachers realized that if you take 15, 20 minutes out of your day to do stuff like that, you're going to prevent the 15 or 20 minutes it's going to take you to have to deal with an escalation. Since the school has gone trauma-informed, even mental health professionals are changing how they interact with children. Before, school psychologist Rachel Widrick would mostly give tests and assessments. Now she forms relationships. So Mason, you I'm sit next to Mason or Darren. Okay, well then Darren will come sit by me, right Darren? Several fourth graders have just shown up in Widrick's office of their own accord to eat their lunch and play the card game Uno. Hey. Hey. <laughs> Four. How's it going today? Not good. Oh, what's going on? I got four strikes. Oh, you got four? They have such adult worries, some of them. Money. Um, Who's picking me up? How am I getting home? 
Can I do these after-school activities? Can we afford this? And while much of the kids' home stress is invisible to teachers, some isn't. About half the school qualifies for free or reduced lunch, which is one proxy for poverty. Diane Noventi is the school nurse. I saw a significant number of kids that would come to school hungry, coming to my office, headaches, uh, belly aches. At least this they can address directly. As an after-school program, students and staff put together food kits to send home with families for the weekend. There was a time in my family that my mom didn't have a job and we, we, were, we didn't have a car and so we didn't have food for a while. This sixth grader is both a volunteer with the program and a recipient. When the first time that my family got a box of food, my mom cried because she was so happy that, she, that we were going to be able to make good dinners that that week with the stuff that we got. And then we got stuff to make a tuna casserole. And While the student was telling me her story, one teacher had to leave the room. She later said it was too painful to hear. And in fact, several staff members say grief has become part of the job. School counselor Heather Lucy sees addiction, incarceration, and mental illness. I love my job, but there are some days where I am absolutely drained because of the things that I've heard or helped a family through. And she doesn't always get support outside the school for what they're doing. She may refer families to counseling services in the community, but wait lists can be months long. Providers change, providers switch, there's turnover. You know, the wait is really hard, and that frustration will build, you know, in a family. Principal Kate Retzel has learned to accept that schools alone, however trauma-sensitive, are not a panacea. They struggle with budgets, with standardized tests. But even if schools can't make up for society's problems, Retzel says they can give children some tools to cope with them. When I see a kiddo who can trudge through a a day despite what's going on outside of their life, I always say, geez, I'd love to bottle that. (laughs) You know, so I can give it to some kids who don't have enough. But I do think we are building this generation of kiddos who are more accepting of struggle, more knowledgeable about, you know what, I'm not a bad person. My brain is reacting to to something, and I this is how I can calm myself. And if the school succeeds with this generation, there could be less trauma in the next one. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Karen Brown. Coming up, we'll search out the oldest forests in New England. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. When you venture into New England's deepest woods, they can feel ancient, like they've been there forever. But nearly all our region's forests have been cut down over the last few centuries to make way for farms, to use as building materials, and to burn as fuel. Brave Little State, the people-powered podcast by Vermont Public Radio, went looking for answers when one of their listeners, Andrew Wild, asked, are there any patches of old-growth forests in Vermont? Here's producer Angela Evansy. Killington, Vermont, near the intersection of Route 4 and Route 100. There's a patch of woods off the side of the road. Um, okay, so where where are we standing? So we're in Gifford Woods State Park, and we've just walked a short distance into the woods. I mean, we're not, we haven't even left sight of the road. Uh, but here we are standing next to one of these giant sugar maple trees. It's a spring afternoon, and I'm walking around with Bob Zaino. 
He's an ecologist with the Vermont Department of Fish and Wildlife. Uh, maybe we should go a little further into the woods and get a little bit further away from the road. <laughs> okay, cool. This patch of forest looks pretty unremarkable, like what you'd see off any trail or road in the Green Mountains. With one exception, every couple hundred feet, there is a very big tree. Okay, here's another big Yeah, so here maple? we are at the base of another tall and large diameter sugar maple. And I actually, I brought this, it's a diameter tape. Oh, cool. We can use it to measure the size uh, of this sugar maple. Okay, let's do it. I'll just sort of pinch it here. Yeah. Okay. Look at that, exactly 40 inches. Wow. What, um, for people who aren't like numbers oriented, what are most Vermont trees in terms of the diameter? I bet most trees that people see are closer to 6 to 15 inches in diameter. Okay, and this one is 40. 40 inches. Yeah. Bob Zeno estimates this tree could be more than 250 years old. You could hide behind this tree. <laughs> yeah, and the two of us couldn't, we couldn't like touch hands if we were to try to put our arms around this tree. It's a big one. Yeah. Yeah. I'll confess, I thought it was going to be pretty straightforward to report. Go to some pretty woods, see some big trees. It wasn't so simple. Is there like a master list that our question asker Andrew could look up and, and check out? I know there's some books that have tried to uh, make those lists, but I don't think there's any comprehensive list. I think most of the places that are old forest we may not even know about because no one's gone in there to count the tree rings and look for them. Ecologist Bob Zeno broke this news to me in Gifford Woods State Park. It's one of the best-known patches of old growth in the state, even though it's only about 20 acres, spanning a busy state route. Sure, we know about the old forest at, at Gifford Woods State Park and Cambridge Pines, for example, and, and a few others with, that we're, we're aware of, less so on private lands. That's Michael Snyder, the commissioner of the Vermont Department of Forests, Parks, and Recreation. I called him up to see if his department, which has forests in its name, keeps a list. Well, we, yes and no and um, more and more. Snyder says more and more because in some ways we're still discovering what old growth remains here. More on that later. But then what about federal land? What old growth do we know about in the Green Mountain National Forest? It is 400,000 acres after all. We estimate that there's about 737 acres at least that we've mapped and categorized on the forest. Jeff Tilley, with the National Forest, says most of that old growth is in remote pockets. There is a more established area, referred to as the Cape, in Goshen and Chittenden, but it's not set up for visitors. It's public land, it's, it's open to the public, but it is a sensitive area. The, the colluvial steep soils that are there are sensitive, which is part of the reason that there's not a lot of interpretive facilities or access. So the short answer to Andrew's question is yes. There are patches of old growth in Vermont, but there's no exhaustive statewide rundown. Now, to be clear, we're not talking about a ton of acreage. Here's Bob Zeno again. Statistically, it's probably zero in the, in the state. Zero percent old growth forest or old forest. Yeah, if we added up all the, the old forest acres in the state, they'd be just a small blip compared to all the forests in the state. Well, not exactly zero percent. So in general, we have uh, less than half a percent of the old growth that we once had remaining east of the Mississippi. So nowhere in the eastern United States is there more than one percent that's in old growth. 
Bill Keaton is a professor of forest ecology and forestry at the University of Vermont. However, New York um, has somewhere between 200 and 400,000 acres, mostly in the Adirondack State Park, although interestingly, it's never been accurately mapped. Compared to what Vermont seems like dozens of acres or hundreds? I think we're somewhere around 1,000 acres in total here. Walking around Gifford Woods with ecologist Bob Zeno, I learned some surprising things about old growth. Number one, it doesn't look the way you might think. Right, so there's that classic image of the thick, dark woods with big trees and nothing else. And uh, what really starts happening in old forests is that you get those big trees, but they're constantly dying. They're falling over. Their tops are breaking off. And so there's actually, in places, a fair bit of light coming into the canopy. This is not some mythical avatar forest. It's not even a dramatic redwood forest, like what you'd find in California. An old forest has big trees, but it also has young trees and middle-aged trees. This is a surprising thing, number two. It's not just about the big old trees. In fact, Bob Zeno puts just as much emphasis on trees that are dead and decomposing. You'll notice he doesn't even say old growth forest. He just says old forest. We can see standing here these, you know, one, two, three, four different down logs that are in different stages of decay. Uh, That's a real characteristic of old forests. A tree that dies of old age or falls down in a windstorm turns into new habitat for animals and insects, and it can nurture new saplings. Bob gets very excited about trees that have tipped over and exposed their giant root systems. These are called tip-up mounds, and they are a defining feature of old growth. So we can see here that on that tip-up where that soil is exposed, uh, there's new tree seedlings growing on it. They get uh, way up in the air, so they already have that 10 or 12 foot advantage of light. But tip-up mounds are just one beneficial feature of old forests. Left to their own devices, ecologists say forests can do a better job mitigating flood damage and storing carbon. This brings us to surprising thing number three. For all its unique characteristics and functions, there isn't actually a clear-cut definition of old growth. And yes, that is a logging pun in poor taste. Clear-cut. The threshold age kind of varies by species. Commissioner Michael Snyder and others say the general starting point is an age of 150 years or more. Then there are other factors. So it's age and what we call complex structure, which is the spatial arrangements and sizes of the trees in a forest. And then um, the third main component is minimal evidence of human disturbance. Complexity is key. And minimal evidence of human disturbance, not none. So not many stumps or tap holes in trees. You know, I look around this place here and there's an abundance of sugar maple. And I can't help but think about, has someone done some maple sugaring in here? Have they cut a few sticks of firewood? Bob Zeno says even the Gifford Woods may not have escaped the human hand. Depending on how you look at it, that may or may not be old growth forest anymore. But this is an old forest. And it's a forest where nature is primarily driving what happens here. You can see how the capital OG old growth can become open to interpretation. And that's probably why cataloging all of Vermont's areas has been so tricky. So again, I don't want to diminish the significance of those remaining fragments. Those are important and we need to conserve them. 
Back to Bill Keaton, the UVM professor we met earlier. And with all due respect to our question asker, Andrew, Bill says we should be asking a different question about old growth. I would ask, what is the future of old growth on the New England landscape and in Vermont? And does it have a future? You know, are there places where we might try to restore and promote old growth forests? Bill takes me on a tour of the UVM Jericho Research Forest. He's been working on an experiment here for almost 20 years. And when he started out, the forest was like an adolescent forest. Your very typical kind of young to mature secondary northern hardwood hemlock forest. Most of the trees were 60 to 80 years old. Just very homogeneous. And Bill was wondering, is it possible to help the forest age? How do we take a structurally simple forest like this that's in this kind of mid-stage of development and, and how do we push it along faster towards that more complex um, later stage of development? You can't speed up time, but can you help the woods develop some of the beneficial characteristics of old growth? It turns out the answer to that question is yes. So I'm about to show you this experiment where we're testing something called structural complexity enhancement. Bill leads me to some plots where he's been testing methods to help promote the conditions of old growth. So right here, you've crossed a boundary line into uh, what we've created here. And I hope you'll notice the differences as we walk in. Yeah, so it definitely seems like more uh, trees on the ground. Absolutely. Thanks for noticing. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> and I'm particularly proud of this right here this tip-up mound, as we call them, which we've created all throughout here. Very typical. Instead of waiting for the wind to blow this tree over, Bill used a skitter to pull it down and tip up its root mass. And just like the tip-up mounds in Gifford Woods, this one is now sprouting little yellow birch and hemlock. Which is just incredibly gratifying to me to see how well this has worked. There are other downed trees and also standing dead trees. This is all Bill's handiwork. It's messier exactly. over here. That's exactly what we're going for. And I'm so glad you noticed that. that the minute you, you cross the boundary, it becomes messier. You see the downed wood. You see the big dead trees that we've created there and there. You see the, the gap in the canopy. You see the tip-up mound. You see the, the multi-layered canopy with trees of all sizes and ages and at different positions in the canopy. Uh, to some people, that looks messy. It looks cluttered, and they don't like that. It doesn't fit the ideal that some people have of a forest, and yet that's precisely what we're going for here. Bill's been testing this stuff for 16 years, but he's run some models to figure out that he's helped this plot, quote, age, or develop characteristics associated with old growth, about twice as quickly as it would on its own. It's also storing more carbon than plots with conventional management, aka logging. And Bill firmly believes that anyone who owns forest land can promote old growth conditions, whether you're logging or just tending to the woods behind your house. Leave some of those brush piles on the ground. Leave the woody debris. Leave the slash. Think of all that stuff as habitat. Think of it as carbon. Think of it as services that that forest has provided. We, we have to move away from this, this ideal of the, the clean forest or the, the forest that we can see into beautifully from our backyard. Um, that might be aesthetically pleasing like a park, but it's not nearly as good for a lot of wildlife and other things. 
We learned earlier that Vermont's old forests are facing the same threats as the rest of our woods. Bill is particularly concerned about invasive species, and he says they may ultimately transform what Vermont's old growth looks like. Hemlock woolly adelgid, Asian longhorn beetle, emerald ash borer, beech bark disease, which of course has already decimated the large beech. All of these things are going to interact with climate change, and they're going to stress this ecosystem. And uh, so how all of that's going to play out into the future is still uncertain, but I'm convinced that there is a role for old growth on the landscape in the future. He's convinced, Bill says, because when it comes to climate change, forests with old growth conditions may be more resilient. The recent research has shown that old growth is highly resistant to climate, or at least more so than maybe some other kinds of of forests. Hmm. That's really interesting, the idea that you can create characteristics in the ecosystem of the old growth forest. That's, That's really interesting. I looped back to our question asker, Andrew, to share our answers to his question. He was surprised. I am surprised. I was particularly surprised about how certain places became preserved, like this aspect of some of them being overlooked. I'm also somewhat surprised by like what they would just look like. It's challenging some of my conceptions of what those places are actually like. Andrew says now that he's learned a little, he wants to learn more. Now I want to go to Gifford Woods and see what that's like, and potentially some other places. Well, I hope you make it to Gifford Woods. Thanks. That's Angela Evansy. That story comes from Brave Little State at Vermont Public Radio. You can hear more. Just go to our website, nextnewengland.org. The health of our region's forests is the topic of a recent article in the journal Frontiers in Forests and Global Change. It examines an idea that's the opposite of deforestation. It's proforestation, allowing forests to grow to maturity, creating a natural forest ecosystem. Susan Messino is co-author of that paper, and she's a professor at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. Well, a natural forest ecosystem would be essentially the self-sustaining forest ecosystem that evolved in New England. So an old growth forest would be a natural forest ecosystem. And some of our older forests now are um, essentially getting to the point where they're going to be, you know, within the next few decades, starting to transition to old growth forests. There are certainly reasons why we would manage our forests for resources, but there's also a wealth of evidence that natural forest ecosystems have great benefits in terms of carbon sequestration, um, diversity of many types of species. Some species we haven't even discovered yet. We're still discovering new species in New England. You know, potential for new medicines, provide maximal flood protection, and also provide human health benefits. So we tried to look at this from kind of an interdisciplinary scientific perspective, which is, I think, what we really need now for our forests, given that they're so important in um, addressing our global crises in climate and biodiversity. Your paper uses the term pro-forestation, which I had not previously, I I will admit, heard of. Could you explain what what that term means? Sure. So when we were trying to look at all these forest values and benefits um, and the critical importance of nature-based solutions, um, we realized there was a lot of talk about afforestation, so growing forests where they aren't now, and reforestation, so letting forests regrow. Um, But there really wasn't a focus on letting existing forests grow 
which is the quickest and most effective way to sequester carbon, particularly in this, this latitude and climate in New England where our forests are still relatively young. They're still um, not even half of their potential um, because they've been regrowing since we were largely deforested. If there are so many benefits to this type of, of forestry maintenance, what are the barriers that you see to it right now, especially in our region? I think we need to kind of apply um, interdisciplinary science to forests because they are so critical. We need climate scientists, we need evolutionary biologists, we need ecologists, we need public health experts. We need a very kind of um, more systemic approach to our forests to understand what is the best way forward and how can our forests serve the greatest good for the longest amount of time. Um, and, you know, use our public resources to maximize public benefits. Um, so I, I believe that we should be trying different things, but we absolutely need to leave some places that are managed by nature. Susan Messino is co-author of the recent article called Intact Forests in the United States, Proforestation Mitigates Climate Change and Serves the Greatest Good. We'll have links to that on our website, nextnewengland.org. Susan, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, John. Coming up, an exchange program connecting faraway Indonesian islands and the nearby Berkshires. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust. In 1953, American illustrator Norman Rockwell moved from Arlington, Vermont, to the small town of Stockbridge, Massachusetts, on the western edge of the Berkshires. While there, Rockwell developed a relationship with a prominent psychotherapist who came to influence the artist's work. Their relationship is the subject of a new exhibit at the Norman Rockwell Museum. It's called Inspired, Norman Rockwell and Eric Erickson. Lily Tyson has our story. Norman Rockwell was born in New York City, but his most iconic work depicted life in small towns, like Stockbridge. He drew inspiration from both the people living there and from the New England landscape and architecture. In one painting, Stockbridge Main Street at Christmas, he depicts the town center, lit up with Christmas trees, cars covered in snow, smoke rising from a chimney, with the Berkshire Mountains in the background. Edward R. Murrow came to visit Rockwell and Stockbridge as part of his interview show, Person to Person. Norman, from our quick tour of Main Street, Stockbridge appears to be a most pleasant town, and I know that personally from driving through it. Yes, uh, we like it very much here. Uh, we've been here, I think, about six or seven years, and we, we really love it. But the reason Rockwell moved to the town wasn't because of its New England charm. He and his wife moved because of an institution that's based there, the Austin Riggs Center. In 1951, his wife Mary uh, began seeking treatment for alcoholism and depression at the Austin Riggs Center in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, which was a, a small but very significant hospital, which was on Main Street in town. That's Stephanie Plunkett, the deputy director and chief curator of the Norman Rockwell Museum. Rockwell himself started treatment at the center shortly after his wife. I mean, obviously, Rockwell was extremely concerned about his wife, Mary, and, and her well-being and the well-being of his family. Uh, so he was certainly seeking counseling to deal with those challenges. But in addition, um, you know, as a very prominent and very busy working illustrator, uh, the stresses of constant deadlines of 
always having to come up with new ideas, um, with struggling with his place in the art world. Rockwell was treated by the renowned German-American psychoanalyst Eric Erickson. Here's Deborah Solomon, author of American Mirror, The Life and Art of Norman Rockwell. He could hold his own in the tormented artist department with any masters from any time. He really agonized over whether his pictures were good, whether he had done them as well as he could do them. And, um, and I think that Erickson helped assuage his doubts and make him feel more assured about his canvases. This was a day-to-day problem with him. You can hear these doubts from Rockwell himself. thousand days I put it on this thing already. I figure I'm either one of three things. I'm either unbelievably untalented, but got an awful lot of perseverance, or else I'm unbelievably stupid, or else I am an artist. I mean, I am seeking perfection. This is what I'd like to think, but I don't know. Rockwell worked closely with Erickson, who was known for coining the term identity crisis, and for his work on the eight stages of development. Both Rockwell and Erickson were interested in ideas of identity, both individual and that of the entire nation. Here's curator Stephanie Plunkett. Both Rockwell and Erickson were observers of human nature, very close observers. And, um, you know, they really, I think, in their focus came to understand um, who people were at their core. And their similarities went on from there. Rockwell's work, which depicts everyday life, often deals with ideas of development and growth. And Erickson had once even considered pursuing a career as an artist, a creative side of him that strengthened his relationship with Rockwell. Here's Jane Tillman, the director of the Erickson Institute for Education and Research at the Austin Riggs Center. What one brings as a therapist is the culmination of life's experiences, uh, one's own experiences uh, and skills. And so I imagine that part of what Erickson would have brought to his role as a therapist is a kind of curiosity, uh, creativity, an interest in seeing things uh, in new ways. The relationship led the artist to begin depicting subjects with more sadness, more emotion. And occasionally, Erickson's ideas showed up in Rockwell's art, such as in the painting Family Tree. It was on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post in 1959. Starting at the base of the tree, a pirate and a young woman, then a man in a tri-cornered hat and his wife. As the family tree grows, more faces are added, including an aristocrat and his wife. Eric came to see me today, and uh, he made a couple of little comments, and I've made some changes on the tree. I've cut out the sprig of leaves that go out beyond the aristocrat's wife so that she's now... uh, not directly connected with the tree, and neither is the barmaid connected with the tree. I made the limb heavier. That was his suggestion. I make it grow heavier as it gets nearer to the, to the severed trunk. And Erickson's suggestions changed the look of Rockwell's painting and its meaning. The artist was pleased. He said, I think this makes it a lot more interesting. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Lily Tyson. The Norman Rockwell tape used in this piece was courtesy of the Norman Rockwell Family Agency. And the exhibit inspired Norman Rockwell and Eric Erickson is on display at the Norman Rockwell Museum in Stockbridge, Massachusetts through October 27th. It takes more than a day to fly from the Berkshires to the country of Indonesia. With more than 250 million inhabitants, Indonesia is Southeast Asia's most populous nation. It's also the world's largest Muslim country. Its nearly 20,000 tropical islands are home to beaches, mountains, rainforests, and bustling metropolises like Jakarta. 
Indonesia's islands may be half a world away from the Berkshires, but as Rebecca Shear tells us, an Indonesian-born filmmaker living in Berkshire County is finding ways to bring her native home and her adopted home closer together. Ian Perwanti was born on the island of Java in Solo, a working-class community where neighbors helped neighbors erect one-room houses with dirt floors and bamboo walls. And I wasn't born in a hospital, it's basically at home with midwives, and I was born premature. My mom says I'm like a, a, a mice. Indeed, baby Ian was like a mouse. She weighed less than two pounds. So my mom has to make a makeshift incubator bricks with like a charcoal and then with like a warm bottle around it and then make sure that 24-7 guard it. So basically all the neighbors doing all those works <laughs> to keep me alive. In fifth grade, Ian Perwanti's family left Solo for Jakarta, Indonesia's massive traffic-choked capital. And when Perwanti became the first in her family to attend college, her neighbors scraped together her first semester tuition. It was like $50, but that was like a lot. Perwanti got an English literature degree from the University of Indonesia. And what happened next is like a Cinderella story. It's just total miracles, really. While working as a fixer for foreign journalists, Perwanti befriended an American photographer who brought her to New York City to help finish a documentary. I don't bring any money. There's no money in my pocket. You know, if you see my home in Seoul and then you've been in the U.S., it's, uh, this is amazing. That same photographer inspired Perwanti to stay in New York and get an MFA in documentary making. She even chipped in funds. After that, Perwanti married fellow filmmaker George Cox. And while the couple was collaborating on a documentary in Vermont, they got a hankering for country living. But when they moved to the Berkshires to start a production company, Perwanti had some reservations. Am I going to be the only brown people in the area? Like, am I going to meet friends? Like, how am I supposed to know people? She also worried that her New England community wouldn't know much about her Southeast Asian one. So she organized a night of Indonesian films, dance, and food at a cafe in West Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Hopefully it will help in, like, bridging that cultural gap and also, like, shattering stigma image of, like, culture in Indonesia. The event was so successful, Perwanti followed it up with an Indonesian country fair, then another. Her newest venture is a cultural exchange program inviting young women from Indonesia and the Berkshires to visit each other's countries and produce a documentary to screen back home. Genevieve Naylor is the program's first participant. She and Ian Perwanti are still jet-lagged as they click through footage they filmed at an elementary school in Java. In other schools, it's like very disrespectful to walk in with your shoes on. At this point, I'm walking in with my shoes off. <laughs> Did you take your shoes off? Yeah, eventually. <laughs> 19-year-old Naylor grew up in the Berkshires. Before her trip, she says she viewed Indonesia like many outsiders do. Um, they think earthquake, they think tsunami, they think um, terrorism. But then she spent three weeks there, visiting mosques during Ramadan, cavorting with fans at a soccer game, and sampling the country's famous street food. I was actually a vegetarian before I went there. And then on my first day, I had soto, which is like a beef soup. And it's like so good. <laughs> Naylor's favorite thing was meeting new people, from the cabbie who taught her Indonesian words and phrases in exchange for English ones, to the stranger who offered her a place to stay. And that proves how friendly and welcoming they are, really, even to a bule like me, which means foreigner. <laughs> one of the first words I learned. <laughs> 
Ian Perwanti calls her exchange program Chinta Hutan. That's Indonesian for Love the Woods. The logo is a blazing heart-shaped campfire. We are the humans since the beginning of time. You always get together around the fire. And where the fire is, where the love is, there's a connection. There's also life. Just think about Ian Perwanti's neighbors stoking the fires of that makeshift incubator on that dirt floor and watching over a premature baby the size of a mouse. The community come together and just like making sure you're alive. And that's love. Perwanti says they'll screen Genevieve Naylor's documentary in the Berkshires, New York, and Washington, D.C. later this year. Then, in 2020, Perwanti will bring an Indonesian woman to the U.S. so that she can experience the culture, meet the people, and feel the love, too. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Rebecca Shear. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. If you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. And you can follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Our program is produced this week by Carlos Mejia and Katie Tolarski. Thanks to Todd Merrill and Goodnight Blue Moon for the music. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and The Public Radio. 